We are in Titus chapter 3. So I would invite you, if you're not already there, to turn to that section of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible, you can uh, grab a blue Bible around you. I did not write down the page number, so I don't remember what page number it is on in that Bible, but that Bible's there for you to use so that you can follow along, make sure I'm not making things up, at least when it comes to the Word of God. (laughs) We are uh, doing a part two, so if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go back and online and listen to part one. But we're just basically picking up where we left off. I'll do a little bit of just very tiny review. But again, I want to point out that the Apostle Paul was passionate about the gospel, about seeing it make progress, seeing its advancement. And connected with that, he was passionate about sinners being saved which happens through the proclamation of the gospel, the sharing of the gospel, witnessing to Christ. And it is in light of that passion that he speaks to the matter here of Christian ethics and earthly citizenship, or how specifically, historically, how the Cretan believers were to behave as citizens of this earth. Christian, how are you to behave as a citizen of this earth? And more specifically, he spoke to their relationship with their governing authorities and their lost neighbors. How are they to interact with them, respond to them, treat them? But how, how are those things connected? How is the advancement of the gospel and your behavior as a Christian and interaction with something such as governing authorities or your lost neighbors, how are they connected? And I've explained that a number of times, but I want to keep trying to burn that connection into your mind. I was reading, and so I'll I'll read a couple of things this morning. I was reading an article this week It was titled, Communicating the Other 90% of the Gospel Message. So that caught my eye. Communicating the Other 90% of the Gospel Message. Let me read it to you, just an excerpt from it. The author of the article said, Experts tell us that communication is only 10% verbal. That's pretty common knowledge. It's been stated before. The other 90% of meaning is conveyed by how we hold our body, and the tone in which we speak, right? Nonverbal communication. So you can say something, you can say the same thing with different body language and it communicates a different meaning. You know what I'm saying? You ladies definitely know what I'm saying, right? What? Was that shock and awe? So, I mean, one of the responsibilities of a man is to quickly learn his wife's body language so he doesn't misunderstand (laughs) what she's actually saying. So, the writer says this fact has huge implications for evangelism. He goes on, if body language and tone, tone of voice, how you communicate these things, convey more meaning than our words... 
then they will lead people to either pay attention to our message or ignore it. If they don't convey the enthusiasm, joy, and peace that we claim to have from the Spirit's presence and work in our lives, people have no reason to believe us, and we become the worst kinds of salespeople. He goes on, though. Yet, I don't think any good will come of our now becoming anxious about whether our body language and tone are effectively communicating the 90% of the gospel our words don't. It's certainly something to think about, but don't get too worked up about that. He goes on to say, rather, I think we should resolve to watch our lives more closely to ensure we throw off every weight and sin so that we become more mature believers. Listen, if our lives are characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, that will persuade people to listen to our message. Further, he says, loving our neighbor and enemy as ourselves is crucial to communicating the other 90% of the gospel. And then he confesses, honestly though, I struggle mightily with keeping this command. I'm far more likely to love my neighbor to the extent it's convenient for me, rather than to love my neighbor the way I love myself and would want my neighbor to love me. (laughs) And beloved, if you haven't figured it out already, Christianity is not convenient. Can I say that? It's not about your convenience. It is about picking up your cross. It is and following Christ. It is about dying to self. As my dear brother, trying to find him, said this morning so I can make contact with him, but I, I can't see him. There you are. I see you. It is about dying to self. And if you're looking for a convenient religion, get out of this one. I, I just... I don't see that anywhere. It's not about convenience. It is not convenient to continually battle your flesh. It's work. It's incredibly hard work, and it's work that would be impossible without the work of the Spirit in your life. Concerning this passage, and again, this connection between our behavior, our conduct, and the advancement of the gospel. A pastor says this, and also concerning this section, Titus 3 says, what our sinful society needs is the gospel, yes? That's what they need, which alone can change human hearts, because that is it. Laws don't change hearts. They might change behavior, but they don't change hearts. They don't turn people to Christ. But, How do we gain a hearing for the gospel among sinful people? He says concerning Titus 3, Paul's answer is that we must live godly lives in this evil world. We must excel in good works that display God's grace through us. He says the changed lives of believers will provide the platform for verbal witness 
that points other sinners to God's grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. John MacArthur says, concerning this passage and this connection, it is our righteous attitude and conduct that make us not only more pleasing to the Lord, but more pleasing to the unsaved. It is righteous living that makes the saving message of the gospel believable to the lost. And when I read that, I thought someone might think, more pleasing to the unsaved, the unsaved. Listen, I totally agree with the statement, but someone might say, well, don't they sometimes hate what we stand for? Listen, they, they might disagree, they might push back against elements of the gospel because they're still in their sin, okay? They may not like something you stand for morally as a Christian person, but if you're living a righteous life, if you're manifesting grace on a consistent basis, not perfectly, because no one does, but consistently, repeatedly, it is attractive, especially to a person who is lost in their sin and living a life of ruin or ultimately leads to ruin. They're looking for something, at least the ones that God is working on and drawing to himself. And like it or not, this is the means or part of the means that God uses to draw lost, rebellious sinners to himself. It is not only the gospel message proclaimed, it is the gospel message lived out, manifested. Christ is beautiful, and they see that Christ is beautiful. Grace is glorious, and they see that grace is glorious. That's how it is to be, beloved. That's how it is to be. That brings us back to our passage, okay? Titus 3, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul writes to Titus to remind them, the congregations of Christians there on the island of Crete, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. A little review. Remind them to. Why remind? I said last time, because we are prone to amnesia, right? We are prone to forget. This is why we constantly need to be reminded of the truths that we once heard. But also, old habits die hard. And by habits, I'm thinking of sinful habits, old sinful ways of living, of doing, of reacting, of conducting yourself. It takes time to obliterate those out of your life and to replace them with righteous behavior, the fruit of the Spirit. It takes time. It takes continually repenting and and turning once again back to the Lord and, and crying out to the Spirit of God for help to live this righteous life. It takes time. It's grueling at times, but necessary for the sake of Christ, 
for the glory of God and for the advancement of the gospel. For that matter, for your own good. For your own good. Fight and keep fighting the good fight. Remind them. Keep reminding them in the present tense, the word is, in the Greek, Titus, to basically maintain an attitude of submission towards and consequently be obedient to their rulers and authorities, the governing rulers that are over them and in every level that they exist, and remind them to be ready for every good work. That is, as one writer put it, to willingly and sincerely be ready, Christian, to perform every good deed toward the people around you as you have opportunity. I said this last week, but concerning that, being good, be ready to do good, one pastor said, no matter how hostile the society around us may be, we are to be good to the people in it whose lives intersect with ours. What was the society like in Crete? Pagan. It was not a Christian society. <laughs> they were, the Christians were the minority, surrounded by pagans. Who was their government? What was their government made up of? Pagans. Unbelievers. It is to those people that they were to seek to do good and be ready to do good and to help and to love. Now, verse 2 is where we left off, and I said a lot more last time, and you can go back, and I would encourage you to, if you haven't, and listen to that. But now we pick up at verse 2. Remind them to speak evil of no one. The no one, beloved, Paul is thinking of here is, again, the Cretans, pagan, unsaved, and still enslaved to their sin neighbors. We know that based on the context of verse 3. That's who he's primarily thinking about. Of course, speak evil of no one would include other brothers and sisters as well, but the focus here is on those who are lost, on those who are unregenerate, on those or for those who are still in rebellion against God. Other Bible translations of this command say malign no one. That's the New American Standard. The NIV says slander no one. Don't malign your lost neighbors. Don't slander them. Don't speak evil of them. To malign, just so that we're clear on terms and we understand what's being communicated, if we were to take that translation, malign is to speak about someone in a spitefully critical manner. Might I add that uh, this would certainly include the Cretans' government. Certainly, in the context, right? Their governing authorities it would include them their lost neighbors, their pagan government, those that they interact with as citizens of this earth. Not to speak about anyone in a spitefully critical manner. To slander, if we were to go with that translation, slander is to make false and damaging statements about someone. 
Uh, in politics, they call this a smear campaign. They're fairly effective because they belittle the other person in the eyes of the voters, and they're hoping just for that, and that's why they do that, that they might not vote for them, but vote for the other party who's always, you know, or a person who's always put up in the greatest of light, right? So smear campaign for them and exalt them to a level that isn't even true. So that's politics, but that happens even among normal folk, neighbors, slander. From the Greek word that's there, which is blasphemeo, does that sound familiar? We get the English term to blaspheme, to blaspheme. That's the Greek word there. One commentator says, essentially, blasphemy is the verbal expression of evil and malicious thoughts directed toward a person who is held in contempt. Uh, definitions, malicious thoughts. Those are thoughts of doing harm to someone. Malicious thoughts. Or doing them harm in some way. Contempt. Someone we hold in contempt. Contempt. That's the feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration, worthless, or deserving scorn. Contempt. In reference to God, right, because normally when we hear blasphemy, we think of God, something we're not supposed to do. It's forbidden to blaspheme God. In reference to God, blasphemy is used to refer to the act of insulting or showing contempt or lack of reverence or respect for God. But in this case, it's, it's blasphemy of one made in the image of God. And if you look up in the Webster's Dictionary, blaspheme, the first definition, before it gets to the definition concerning how it's used with God, is to revile or abuse. Revile or abuse. And revile, again, definitions, means to criticize in an abusive or angrily insulting manner. Here are the various words used to define the Greek word blasphemeo. Here they are. Insult, slander, curse, defame, revile, speak evil, or blaspheme. Do that of no one. That's what Paul says. The commentator points out that this command does not mean that they are or we are never to talk of and expose the evils of men. Don't get confused. I don't imagine that you would, but just in case. It's not that we aren't to talk of or expose the evils of men or of the government or of society or of our neighbors, <laughs> okay? Because he points out Jesus himself did so very forcefully. That's not what we're being told not to do. But he goes on to say it means that they are not to, as I just said, malign, slandered, or speak injuriously of others. I told you this last week. I won't you know, go into a cry fest this morning confessing my own sins to you. But 
even as I've been looking at this passage, just how I felt my own heart get caught up because I'm a political junkie. Uh, I just, yeah, I watch it like almost 20. I mean, I watch a lot of it. It's like I just, I don't know. And I've always told myself, maybe you should just stop. It would be better for you. But I, for whatever reason, I keep doing it. So I know I have the power to stop. I know I do. I'm not saying I'm a victim. Um, I can stop. I just choose not to. I just choose not to. And I feel, I felt my own heart just getting caught up in all the rancor and the speech and the nastiness of it all to the degree that I myself started thinking and speaking in the same way. And then that spills over, beloved, that spills over into just your, how you talk and think about others that you don't agree with or you don't like, or, and maybe legitimately so, maybe they're awful people. <laughs> in the sense of, in the sense of just rebellious and sinful in that sense. But even so, you are not to speak evil of them. One writer says they were to abstain from the common practice of hurling curses and abusive words at those offending or injuring them. I'm just telling you, if we had these kind of people actually uh, surrendered to this, this was their final authority, as Chris said, all right, the ultimate authority. If they actually went, then how many posts would come off of Facebook and Twitter? How many would have to just dissolve or be deleted? How many would never be made? I wonder. He says the demand, this author, this commentator says the demand required inner grace but was appropriate, but was appropriate, but was appropriate for followers of the Christ. Hey, are you a follower of Christ? Are you? Yeah, this is the feedback part. I know you are, sister. I know you are. I don't know about the rest of them. That's why I'm asking them, Senior. No, that's not true. That's not true. I know my wife is too. Are you a follower of Christ? It is appropriate for the followers of Christ, listen, who did not revile when he was reviled. This is what it means to follow Christ. 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, the word says, speaking of Jesus, he did not revile in return. He did not revile in return. When he suffered at the hands of sinful people, rebellious people, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him his Father, who judges justly. Later, Peter goes on in chapter 3, and now he addresses the congregation, the Christian, and he says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. If you look up uh, again, the Greek word there, revile, it in the Greek means slander, insult, 
verbal abuse. It's all the same. It's all in the same camp here. Speak evil of, blaspheme. Now, beloved, listen, why might a Christian, let's just ask, why might a Christian speak evil of, blaspheme, or malign their unsaved, still enslaved to their sin neighbor? You know, do they like get up in the morning and like, you know what? I haven't had a good round of blaspheming yet. I always want to start my day with a nice hot cup of coffee and a little bit of slander and maligning. And so let me think, ah, Bob, yeah. Is that how it works? Huh? Goodness, great. If you do that, you need to come and talk to us. There's something seriously wrong with you. You need to repent. Seriously, something's wrong. And I just don't think that's, that's not what really happens. Why do we speak evil of others? What is one reason? Well, it's often because they have done something against us. They have offended us. They have hurt us injured us in some way, and we then lash out. Yeah? True or not true? Okay, all right. So one writer says, and by the way, they're surrounded, they're surrounded by pagan neighbors, right? Remember, that's the context. One writer says, if a neighbor wrongs you in some way, the human tendency is to build your case against him by running him down or her down when you talk to the other neighbors. But you won't win that neighbor to Christ if you alienate him by maligning him. Of course, if you're not thinking about winning them to Christ, then what does it matter? But if you're not thinking about winning them to Christ, you're not thinking rightly. You're not thinking biblically. You're thinking about something else, yourself. Your rights, your offense, your hurt. One writer says, it is right to hate the sin, to even become angry at the sinfulness that undermines the fiber of our society, but it is wrong for us to express this in ways that demonstrates hatefulness against the person. He goes on to say, as verses 3 to 5 will demonstrate, and we'll get there next week, God hates our sin, but in the coming of Christ, he has shown his kindness and love toward us as sinners. This demonstration of God's love and kindness must temper our comments and attitudes toward others. It must First Thess 5.15 says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone, not just your brothers and sisters, but everyone, even those pagan-loving, Christ-rejecting rebels that live right next to you or work with you or you interact with. Romans 12, 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. That's our call. Convenient? I think not. It's a pain to die to self, but it's a pain worth having, enduring, 
and surrendering too. Next. Oh, it gets better, beloved. Remind them to avoid quarreling. One translation says avoid fighting. But quarreling's better. Because fighting, you might think of Quarreling can lead to, but uh, that, the boxing and punching, and that's not the focus here of Paul. Quarreling is better. Avoid quarreling. The Greek word is defined as, if you look it up in a Greek dictionary, not contentious. Not looking for a fight, to fight, to have conflict with someone. Not a brawler. A brawler is one who habitually engages in fights or quarrels. A brawler. You know, I've said this before because this is, you know, this comes up multi, you know, a number of times throughout the scripture about us not being this type of people, but this is elevated in our society. Honest, this is again culture. Chris was talking about culture. If if culture is going to be your guide, you are in big trouble. Because our culture is like, yeah, man, I'm tough. I'm a brawler. I ain't taking nothing from no one. That's right. And that's one level of um, silliness, but then it, it extends further, and they even go looking for it. You know what I mean? Like, did you look, you know, like this. You, you eyeballing me? Right? You, I think you are. I wouldn't win that fight anyway. <laughs> I know my limits. Okay, so avoid quarreling. Uh, not contentious, not looking for a fight, not a brawler. Contentious, contentious, that's good. That's not contentious, I like that. Contentious, a uh, definition of that is exhibiting an often perverse and wearisome tendency to quarrels and disputes. You might have a contentious spouse. I didn't look at you, sweetie. Like, I was, there was nothing there. I just looked to see if you're still smiling because that tells me I'm okay. I haven't gone too far. Uh, contentious spouse, right? A contentious woman. Ugh. Oof. That's rough, man. Always looking to fight and quarrel. Just a wearisome tendency, right? We're not to be that way towards anyone, let alone our, our spouse. The New American Standard Bible and the NIV, they, they go ahead and translate this word, be peaceable. But peaceable, as one uh, author points out, is the dynamic equivalent, and it is the goal in mind of the word. It's the goal in mind, but it misses the force of the Greek word that is there. So I, wouldn't, I don't like be peaceable. It's okay, but it, it's better avoid quarreling. As uh, the scholar points out, Paul could have used a different Greek word if he, that means peaceable or peaceful, but he didn't. He used a word that means not prone to fighting or starting quarrels. So the goal is peace, but he wants to address this. Don't go looking for fights and don't be a quarreler. In fact, avoid it. Again, you know, just... You know, if you watch Fox or CNN or any number, my goodness, there's no avoiding of anything of that nature. Look, they can't, people can't even have just a conversation about things anymore without going at one another. 
That should not be true of us. It may be true of them, and, and they have their roles and whatever, but that should not be true of us. We should not pick up the way we are to conduct ourselves from news anchors, political news anchors, for sure. That's just one example, personal one. One writer uh, says this, this does not mean that a Christian, as a good citizen, will not be ready to stand up for the principles he believes in, okay? And even give reasons for the hope that is in him. But he is willing to allow others to hold to their opinions and is not one who is always ready to step into the ring with those who disagree with him, verbally speaking. Those who are contentious and quarrelsome with their neighbors not only make poor citizens, but poor testimonies for their Savior. Your neighbor wants to fight with you? Avoid it. Do what you can to avoid it. Not engage. They're... And again... You know, if it's a Christian brother or sister, you have other means of going about that, right? We can, we can talk to them. We can appeal to their, their Christianity and their new nature and the scriptures. But your lost neighbor doesn't, doesn't re respect the Bible per se. And they're, they're, by the way, dead in their sins and trespasses, enslaved to their passions. They're acting as an unbeliever acts. What do you want to do? Add more fuel to that fire? They need the gospel. But you're, not, you're going to destroy your opportunities to give the gospel if you get into a battle with them unnecessarily. Again, I'm not, we're not talking here about self-defense, but we're not talking about him throwing fists and punching you. And, and even that, you know, I'll stand my ground, like the stand, stand your ground law, like I'll stand my ground. No one's going to punch me. Dude, you, there is another choice. You could walk away. Well, he's chasing me. Then run away. <laughs> you could. For the sake of the gospel and the witness of Christ, who did not revile when he was reviled, but entrusted himself to God, the perfect judge, the Father. Another writer says, and it's interesting because I don't know how to say it, but he says, the Greek word there, avoid quarreling, is amachos. Uh, a is a uh, not. Machos is, or mache is a fight, a quarrel, a strife, a contention. So not a fight, a strife, a quarrel, a contention. He says, I'm not sure about this, but he's, he earlier says that that's where we get the, the word macho from. Macho from. But this is not macho. Don't be macho, right? And he says, as Christians, and again, like, uh, you know, that's like something that's held up, uh, like, good, that's good. It's not. It's not. It's not, Christian. It's not. As Christians, we don't need to act in a macho fashion trying to prove that no one can shove us around. Are you crazy? What are you doing? What are you doing? I know what you're doing. You're doing what the flesh is, is tempting you to do. I get it. I get it. It's the same temptations I have. I get it. But you're not to do that. You're not to surrender to your, your flesh or your old habits. Don't surrender. Surrender to the Lord. Surrender to him and his word. 
We don't need to act in a macho fashion trying to prove that no one can shove us around. We shouldn't take offense easily. If we're wrong, we should try to conciliate. You know what that word means? Pacify. Pacify. I've said this before. Pacify. You use a pacifier to hopefully calm the baby. Hopefully. <laughs> pacify. Calm. That's why it's called a pacifier. Calms them. And then he says this. I wonder if you, you agree with this. It is more important to maintain good relations with your neighbor than to stand up for your rights. I mean, that would only make sense in light of an opportunity to make the gospel known to them. To have a door, hopefully, still open where you can engage them, speak to them, care for them, help them, and have an opportunity to actually share the good news of Jesus Christ. But if you don't care about those things, then who cares, right? Then it only just boils down to, well, it's, you know, it's probably good to have good relationships with your neighbors because, you know, that way they'll watch your stuff, you know, make sure if someone steals your stuff. I mean, like, then it just becomes that. Like, and, but that doesn't work in the end because you can be like, hey, I don't care, man. I put cameras around my house. I've, I've got my own guns and weapons. I don't need my neighbors. I don't need anybody. Yeah, okay, self-centered, selfishness. See? So the higher purpose is for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of even witnessing to others the grace of God. I was a sinner too. I was messed up too, really bad. I was walking in darkness. I was disobedient. I slandered. I maligned, but no more. If someone would come to me, I'd come back at them a little bit harder. What's President Trump called? A counterpuncher. I'm not going to get into politics here. And you'll never really probably know where I even stand. Just calling out what I call out. It's in our culture is what I'm saying. The highest office in the land, the man is referred to as a counterpuncher. What does that mean? When he gets punched, he punches back harder. So you even see with this debate going back and forth with uh, the, the lady that uh, is an advisor to him, Con... Um, Huh? Thank you, sir. He's also kind of a political junkie, too, but it's probably because I'm, I'm probably rubbing off on him, encouraging him in these things. But Kellyanne Conway, you know, we're together, and so, my brother. Kellyanne Conway, right? Look at the situation she's in, because Kellyanne Conway's husband is critiquing Trump for a number of things on Twitter, because that's where we do everything now, and... Trump is firing back, saying he's slandering. Look, it's going both ways, okay? So there's guilt all over the place. It's going both ways. He's saying terrible things about her husband. She now is she's in a weird position. And so she's like, well, I mean, he, you don't just expect him to stand there and take it, do you? She's, she's not talking about her husband. She's talking about Trump. She's defending Trump. I get it. She's in a weird position. I'm not judging her. I'm not. I'm just pointing out what's happening and how crazy that is, and we live in that. You understand? We live in that. We swallow it. We're drinking it in, and if we're not careful, we become that. Pray for your president. Romans 12, 18 says, I feel, you know, I told you, I feel just like I'm with you. 
I'm with you, and I'm just convicted again as I breathe through this, and I'm like, Lord. Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, okay? As far as whatever you can do to make that happen, do it. Do it. I mean, look, if my neighbor comes at me and I am in a position where I can't do anything except strike back for the sake of protecting my family, right? I'm going to strike back. I'm not going to, but I'm not like looking to do that. I'm like, you know, thinking it through. All right, if they do this, I'll do this. I'm not, I'm not having strategies against my neighbors, but yeah, I'll defend my family. But, it, but if I can get out of the situation, if I'm not put into a corner, I'm going to... I hope, let me say that, I hope, I know what to do, and I hope that I do it, that I get out. That's the idea. And not just because I don't want to go to jail, you know what I mean? Like, uh, like yeah, you don't want to do that, Jeremy, because, you know, you do something and you use your weapon against him, it might work against you, and you might end up in prison, and then what's that going to look like as a pastor? Well, okay, there's something there, that wouldn't look very good as a pastor, but, you know, you don't want to do time, you couldn't handle it, that's true, I couldn't, I know that. <laughs> I know that, I know that, but that's not the reason. That's not, that shouldn't be my motivation. I'm thinking, you know, I just, I want to keep the door open. I want to, sh- and I want to show grace. I want to put it on display. Yeah, I was like you too. And if I was still like you, I would punch you back. God has saved me, he's rescued me, he's redeemed me. And it's not just for that neighbor, but it may be for the other neighbors that are watching and seeing this all play out. How did you respond? All right, to be gentle. So he goes from, this is, Paul, this is Paul's, he does this frequently. It's this and this. He covers both sides. So he goes from the negative, avoid quarreling, and he now follows it up with the positive, be gentle. Okay? Remind them to avoid quarreling to be gentle. It's not just, I'm just avoiding quarreling, but I'm also being gentle, right? One uh, commentator says, he must be gentle or yielding, yielding. That's the word. Not stubbornly insisting on his own rights. You'll notice a, a theme here with the words that are, Paul uses. Not stubbornly insisting on his own rights, but acting in courtesy and forbearance forbearance. That, the, the word has this nuance of forbearance. What is forbearance? Here's a Webster's Dictionary of forbearance. It is a refrain, listen, it is a refraining from the enforcement of something that is due. What is that something? Such as a debt, a right, or an obligation. It is refraining from that. It is patience, it is leniency. What is leniency? I don't pretend, like, I'm not acting like you guys don't know these words. I just want to make sure we're very clear on definitions because it's important. If we don't know what the words actually mean, then it won't have any impact on us. Leniency is the fact or quality of being more merciful or tolerant than expected. Leniency, forbearance. Refraining from the enforcement of something that is due. 
One scholar says, as I pointed out, the Greek word has the nuance of forbearance, of not standing up for your rights, when to do so, you would shred a relationship. He goes on to say, this person, there are situations where to stand on your rights would cause such damage toward an unbeliever that he would never want to hear about your Savior. It is far more important in such cases to absorb the wrong and to keep the door open for witness. Who does that? Christians living under the word of God by the power of the Spirit. That's who does that. That's who does that. Uh, Christ did that. And we are called to follow Christ. Another author says that the man who is gentle and or this Greek word would be better said, is ever ready, is ever ready to tempt, tempter, tempter justice with mercy and to avoid the injustice which often lies in being strictly just. But oh, how we love justice when it's someone else paying the price. God be merciful to me. Right? Don't give me justice. Give me mercy. But the other individual who has come against you or offended you, give them justice. And God, you're taking too long, so I'm going to step in and do it for you. Mm -mm. Not to be us. He goes on to say the person, this person is the opposite of the one who stands up to the very end for his or her legal rights. Behind this is undoubtedly the spirit of grace and mercy we are to show others just as God has done for us. The apostle will appeal to this in verses 4 through 7, as we'll see. A real-life example of this is, just all of this together is, I'm looking for, I don't see them here. Is James here? Oh, hi, sir. They have a neighbor, and the neighbors, they've had some incidences with that neighbor. Neighbor doesn't seem to be very fond of them. For, and I'm not going to try to figure out why, right, other than we believe him to be lost, enslaved to his sin, okay? But the neighbor challenged one of our ladies. We meet there for men's study, for women's study, as many of you know, and also for a growth group. So we're there somewhat frequently. And yeah, at the, men's, at the women's study, men's study, there's a number of cars, so, but we're parking on a public street. As far as I know, we're not blocking anyone's driveway. You know, We're not pulling it on their driveway and letting the oil pour out. We're not doing anything crazy like that. We're not loud. I mean, other than the singing that happens inside of his home, your home. But we're not like, rah, it's a big ruckus outside. We're not throwing our trash. I hope none of you are doing that. But that's not, there's been no accusations of that. But, you know, goodness. We're not party goers. You know what I mean? We're there to have a Bible study to 
to learn more about our dear, precious Lord and become better followers of him. Wow. But this neighbor, you know, wanted to address one of our ladies, which in and of itself says something, a man addressing a lady like he did. Something's not right there. So I sent out, uh, you know, he wanted to say, what are you guys doing here? I don't like you parking in front of here. And by the way, I'm the only one. I'm the only one. And, you know, I'm obviously, I don't know if he said it like this, but for the sake of the illustration, I'm going to do this, okay? But Melissa is the one who was addressed, and, she, and so she shared a little bit. But anyway, what are you doing here? You know, parking. I don't like you parking your car in front of my house. You know, I'm the only, eh, all the neighbors hate it. I'm the only one, you know, going to say something about it, though. What? You know, when unbelievers act like unbelievers, why are you surprised? I mean, before you were a believer, you may have done something just as ridiculous and stupid too because it's your own little kingdom, and you're like, yeah, and that kingdom now extends to the public area of the street because you're just ridiculous, you know? I want what I want. I don't want a car out in front of my house. Okay, <laughs> all right. So I sent out an email to the men's and women's study. I said, listen, please don't park in front of his house. What I found, I understood... Some of you responded, some of you said, you know, when I got your email, that wasn't my first thought. <laughs> and I get it. I do. I get it. Like, who, who do you think you are? Are you kidding me? It's a public street, bro. <laughs> get back. Step back. I'll go get Isaac. I ain't messing around. I... So, but uh, it, was, it was, A, I didn't want to, why stir that pot, right? It would only be more danger for them, but also there's a witness that we have. Okay, we have a right to park on the street. We do. And I guess if every neighbor came out to me and, and they said, well, it worked with, that neighbor, so if they all started coming out and saying, hey, we don't want you parking in front of our house either, I, you know, I'd try to, try to negotiate. I'd try to negotiate. It's not the right word. I would, I would try to reason. I would try to reason with them. You know, I mean, I don't know. At what, what point would I say, hey, listen, we're, we gotta, you know, we're going to park here. But this was, you know, can we, can we surrender our right there for the sake of not making that matter worse and also hoping, praying that the guy would one day be open to the gospel, that James and, and Sarah and their relationship with him, they're just two doors down that they, he might see, listen, we are not abusive people. We're not, we're not demanding our rights. We're not here to, to invade you. We're not, we're just here. We're kind people. We're gentle people, demonstrated by the fact that, all right, man, you don't want us to park in front of your house. Okay, no sweat off our back. I mean, God owns it all, but it's all right, and we own it all because of that. I could go that route, too. I own that. I own your house, bro. It's mine. <laughs> mine it ain't yours you're not a believer yet you have no part in it baby i mean you know what i mean so it's just that and then finally he 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 closes it out and he says and remind them to show perfect courtesy toward all people or complete courtesy and he's not talking about although manners would be certainly a way to be kind and it, it, it it's not just manners like oh, have good manners that's not what he's talking about the, um, and by the way, it's all people, right? So it's including those that are hostile and, and morally perverse, right? The kind of people that we sometimes, as Christians, the longer you're a Christian, you begin to have contempt for. 
you know, those sinful people, which is why we're studying respectable sins. Like, wake up, Christian. You got plenty to work on on your own heart. And besides the fact, you too were really messed up until Christ came and saved you. And now he's beginning to do a good work in you, which in makes you more aware of how sinful sin is and how ugly and bad it is because you're in the light now. But if you're in darkness, you don't even realize how ugly you are. You're in the dark. You don't have a mirror. And even if you did, it's dark. You see what I'm saying? You are shown mercy. You are shown kindness. You are to show mercy. You are to show kindness. At minimum, understanding. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. And the Greek word here, there's three words used to define this Greek word that's translated show perfect or complete courtesy, at least in the ESV and the NET. Those three words are, I'm almost done, gentleness, meekness, humility. It's, it's not any one of those words. It's all of those words together. So, it's a li- so the, those who are more skilled in the Greek, at least with the ESV, have decided to translate as show perfect courtesy. But just taking those words Meekness, meekness, if we were to think of those three words, so we have gentleness, meekness, humility. Meekness is, as one writer defines it, humility toward God and toward others. It is having the right or the power to do something, but refraining for the benefit of someone else. See, we're right back again where we started. It's, it's the same theme running throughout all of these words. Meekness, as the Webster's Dictionary defines it, is enduring injury with patience and without resentment. Who does that? Someone surrendering their lives to Christ and living by the power of the Spirit. Someone whose passion it is to see the gospel advance and make progress and see sinners saved. Someone whose priority is to live for the glory of God and not themselves. Picking up on the fact that the word included as a description of the word is humility, the NIV translated as show true humility toward all men. But again, it's not humility. There's another word for that. It is gentleness, meekness, and humility. And even in the NIV where it says show true humility, if you have that version, true humility, someone might think true humility compared to like a false humility? No, true is literally all. It's literally all in the Greek. And it stresses not its genuineness, but the greatest possible manifestation of that grace. Full humility, gentleness, meekness. The word is described negatively in this way. This is what it's not, just to help you understand the word itself and why it was translated show perfect courtesy or complete courtesy. The word is not this. The opposite of, the opposite of this is the opposite of the word. Self-assertiveness and self-interest. It is a spirit that is not occupied with self at all. That's the Greek word. Not occupied with self at all. Who's that? Well, that's, I'm always occupied with self which is why I have problems, but not always, not always. When I'm walking in the Spirit, when I'm living under His rule, when I'm, when I'm thinking on the Scriptures and allowing that to, ha- to rule me and to guide me instead of my flesh or my emotions at the moment, then I'm not walking 
I'm not concerned with self. I'm concerned with God. I'm concerned with his glory. I'm concerned with his will. So just two passages, and I'll close with this. I'm just going to read them, and then I'll pray, okay? Two passages came to mind after looking at this passage, too. One is in Luke, and one is in 2 Timothy. I'll read them to you. They'll be up on the screen, and then I'll close in prayer. The Lord Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, you lend to get. What credit is that to you? So you only give if you get. Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, give, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. And the second passage is in 2 Timothy, and to me, it incorporates everything we just looked at, especially with this evangelistic zeal and concern to see people come to Christ. And here it is. Here's Paul's words to Timothy, and let the words that we just read in Titus ring in your ears as I read this. It's in the NIV translation, don't have anything to do, Timothy, with foolish and stupid arguments, controversies in the SV, because you know they produce quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, instead he must be kind to everyone, able to teach not resentful in the ESV, patiently enduring evil. Verse 25, those who oppose him or his opponents, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who is the real enemy who has taken them captive to do his will. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And now may it have its way with our hearts, and as a result, with our lives. For your glory, in Christ's name, amen.